Well, it's so good to be here. It is my first time in Scotland. I pray it's not my last time. And as I said, in the, we had a little session for the, um, for the leaders a little while ago, and someone wrote me when they, on my Facebook page and said, oh, you're going to Scotland? They said, I love the summers there. This year it happened on Wednesday. <laughs> so I sort of figured out it rains all the time here, right? Like, this is how it gets so green. It rains all the time. So, um, yeah, it's very exciting. Um, we uh, just just kind of get to know me a little bit and get to know you this week. Um, I, my, I'll be, I'll have more, we have our 40th anniversary on July 19th of this year. Been married to the same woman for 40 years. And, uh, yeah, I met my wife when she was 12. It's a true story. Got engaged when she was 13. That's also a true dysfunctional story. Got married when she was 17. We have four kids, and we have eight grandkids. My oldest grandchild just turned 17 yesterday while I was here. And uh, I have, uh, I have a 17-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, all the way down to nine. And uh, t- uh, three of my kids are in full-time ministry. How many know as soon as you receive Jesus, you're in full-time ministry? You may suck at it, but you're in it, right? Because um, there's only a royal priesthood. There is no two classes of people. There's actually no such thing as lay people in the Bible. Um, there's actually only one class of people. You're all priests. And wherever you go, that's your pulpit right there. And so that's exciting. But my kids, three of my kids have figured out how to get paid for it. So that's good too. It's so awesome to get paid for church. You know, I'm like, I used to go for free. Now I'm a child of God. I don't think that had anything to do with it. So let's pray. Why don't you grab a hand? And if you're single and the person next to you is single, if you'd like to date them, just squeeze their hand. I'm sorry, they do need to be the opposite sex, though. And if it's a, if it's a yes, just squeeze back. Do you know I've had five people tell me in the last two years that they've gotten engaged and married because of this? That's my angel. My angel's Cupid. So, Lord, we just pray right now that you would just release, as we prayed earlier, a spirit of revelation in the room. We would see things we've never seen, hear things we've never heard, so we can be people we've never been and do things we've never done before. Lord, we pray that you would just give us angelic help tonight, that you would bless people, that people would actually get healed, and they would get, they would get delivered as we, as we share tonight, that there would just be uh, the atmosphere that that's in the room, would actually, which actually transform people. And we pray, God, that our hearts would be fully alive, that we'd be fully actualized, fully alive, sons and daughters of the King. Amen. Um, I want to share with you, I don't know how far I'll get in this message because we have a little bit of time uh, constraint, but I, I, I believe that we're in the great, second greatest epic season in the history of humanity. And I want to tell you about that, a little bit about that, and, and I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll finish it in another session, but um, the greatest epic, first of all, let me just tell you that there's two words in the English language, the real English language. <laughs> you guys have slaughtered the English language. <laughs> I don't know what dictionary you're reading, but there ain't, those words ain't in there. <laughs> Thankfully, the Americans have kept the English language alive. Yeah, even the English, I don't know what happened to them. Good thing we stayed pure to the real language. You all have an accent. 
Um, so there's two words for the word epic, or at least the way we pronounce epic, E-P-I-C, which means great or grand. And then there's E-P-O-C-H, which means, and biblically it means a way in which God dealt with a certain people in a certain time. A way in which God dealt with a certain people in a certain time. And I believe that we've just entered the second greatest epic season in human history. The first would, of course, be the cross, because the cross divided the old covenant from the new covenant. And maybe we'll talk about that in another session. But I believe we're in the second greatest epic season in the history of the world. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that. And I want to talk to you a little bit about epic seasons. In, in, um, in Exodus chapter 16, it's the story of the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea. Do you remember that story? The, or the Jordan River. I'm sorry, the Jordan River. And they... Well, the angels are singing. <laughs> they should be paying attention to what I'm saying. When they crossed the Jordan River, the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, it says that the manna ceased, the fire was gone, the cloud disappeared. Their supernatural weather system was gone, their supernatural food system was gone, and God said, welcome to the promised land. And when they crossed the Jordan River, the Bible never says, in fact, I was just reading it again, the Bible never says, never says that God told them that the manna would cease, that the cloud would be gone, that the fire would be gone. It just says that on the day they crossed the Jordan River, that the manna ceased, the cloud was gone, the fire was gone, and God said, welcome to the promised land. And God went from doing miracles to them to do miracles through them. But I'd like to suggest that when they crossed the Red Sea, I'm sorry, the Jordan River, when they crossed the Jordan River, that they actually did cross the Jordan River. I'm not saying it was a metaphor. They really did cross the Jordan River. But when they crossed the Jordan River in the, in the, in the natural world, in the first heaven, they crossed into a new epic season in the second heaven in which God dealt with the same people in a different way. And I can imagine that when they crossed the Jordan River and the manna ceased, you remember these people were born in the wilderness. Everybody except for Joshua and Caleb was born in the wilderness. And so for 40 years, all these people ate was manna. Manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna, manna for, you know, you can imagine, manna. And the day they crossed the Jordan River, the manna ceased. And I imagine they probably thought, well, we're probably on a seven-day fast. And on day eight, well, we're probably on a 14-day fast. Day 15, well, maybe we're on a 40-day fast. And about day 42, I would imagine that Mary turned to Joel and said, you need to get a job. <laughs> and he said, what's a job? You know, that's why they wrote the book of Job into the Bible. And suddenly, how many of you know that if you've gathered manna for 40 years, and you're the Olympic gold medal manna gatherer, that when you go into the promised land and the manna cease, you don't want the manna to cease. And I imagine lots of people were eating manna by faith. You didn't get that. But anyway, you know, the greatest resistors of the new thing God's doing is people who succeeded in the old. That's a good word. Don't worry, I brought my own encouragement. They told me you guys are quiet. Thank you, ma'am. And so I believe Isaiah 42, 9 says, The former things have come to pass. Behold, I proclaim new things to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. Now, I think that Isaiah actually talks, if you will, in parables and in, in sayings and, and in, I, I think there's more than one meaning to many of his passages. 
And he says in this passage, the former things have come to pass. Behold, I proclaim new things to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. I'd like to suggest that he's not just talking about singing, but he's using the word sing. He's using singing as a metaphor for a new way of thinking. In other words, he's saying, the old things have come to pass, and when you come into this new thing, you're going to need a new song. You're going to actually need a new way of thinking, because the old way of thinking isn't going to work. And then, are you with me? It was Eric Hoffer who said, when in times of change, learners inherit the earth, while the learned find themselves beautifully prepared for a world that no longer exists. In times of change, learners, people who keep learning, inherit the earth, while the learned find themselves beautifully prepared for a world that no longer exists. I believe that the Lord wants us to sing a new song. I'm not talking about singing a new song in worship. That's, that's good, I believe in that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I think that we're coming into a new epic season, a new way in which God deals with the same people, but in a different season. And that it's going to require a new song, a new way of thinking. Jesus actually depicted music as a metaphor for a new way of thinking. He said, John sang the dirge. It's the funeral song. And you didn't mourn. I played the flute and you didn't dance. I'd like to suggest that John never actually sang a funeral song or Jesus probably never played a flute. He was saying to them in prophetic language, listen, when it was time to mourn, you didn't sing the funeral song. And now it's time to dance and you're not singing the wedding song. In other words, the, <laughs> you know, I, um, I think it's uh, Matthew 5, 43. You've heard it said, love your neighbor but hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and you'll be like my Father in heaven who makes it what? Rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Think about that. This is a transition verse. This is old covenant to new covenant. You heard it said, love your neighbor but hate your enemies. Where did they hear that? From God. For for 2,000 years, God said, go into the promised land, kill everybody. Don't let anyone live. Remember this? Remember King Saul? He let his enemy king Agag live. And Samuel the prophet comes in and says, Why did you let that enemy live? And he takes his sword out. Salt, I'm sorry. Samuel takes his sword out and cuts the king to pieces. And Samuel is the good guy. And Saul is the bad guy in the story. God says to Joshua, Go into the land and don't let anyone live. It was a complete genocide. In fact, in Deuteronomy 18, it said, God said, If you serve other gods, it will not rain in the land. Which is why Elijah didn't even ask God about the rain. He stopped the rain because Jezebel and Ahab were serving other gods. And yet, in the New Covenant, what happens? God makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In the Old Covenant, it wouldn't rain on the unrighteous. But the New Covenant rains on both. What, is the, what, what am I getting at? I'm saying the, the greatest transition in human history was the cross where it rains on both the righteous and the unrighteous and some people haven't even made the first transition some people are still living in the old covenant judging people hello because they're singing the wrong song they're singing the dirge and jesus came to play the the flute the gospel's good news hello this is a good word don't worry got it all handled Thank you, I'm trying, doing my best. 
First Chronicles 12, 32, the sons of Issachar. How many times have you heard this verse in the last 10 years? The sons of Issachar were, were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do in the times. I'm trying to convince you that in the last 10 years, we've stepped over the Jordan River. The manna has ceased. The cloud is gone, the fire is gone, and people are saying God's gone. And I'm saying, no, it's a new epic season that requires a new song. The song we sang isn't going to work in the promised land. We're waiting for God to do things that he commissioned you to do. When's God going to change the world? I don't know. When are you? Well, the way God used to move, He's still moving. Now He's doing it through you instead of to you. Amen. Here we go. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the second greatest epic season change in human history. I was laying on the floor 17 years ago when I first came to Bethel. We were living in this little apartment. And it, it had two bedrooms. And the, sec, the second bedroom we kind of used as a little prayer place to pray. So I was in the bedroom at... It was early, early in the morning, maybe 5 o'clock in the morning. I was laying on the floor like I like to do, because I'm ADD, so looking at the carpet helps me to focus. I, was, I usually lay down before I preach, but that didn't seem like the wisest choice. Even though I had my wallies on. And I heard the Lord say this to me. We're moving from denominationalism to apostleships, ask me what that means. Now I knew it was the Lord because I don't use words that have that many syllables. I have no education. I went to what's the matter you. It's an Italian college. You might have heard of it. What's the matter you? My mother taught all the classes. My mother. Anyway, okay. And the Lord said, we're moving from denominationalism to apostleships, ask me what that means. Now, before I go on, I want to just be really clear so I don't lose anybody. I'm not talking about denomination. I'm talking about denominationalism. It's like communism. It's a spirit. So there's as much denominationalism in apostolic networks as there are in denominational churches. I'm not talking about what it says over your door. I'm talking about what it says over your heart. So let me just be really clear. I'm not, I want to, as I teach, I want you to be free to understand. I'm not talking about that there'll never be denominations. I'm saying the ism. Okay? You, even if I say denomination, I mean ism. Okay? I'm talking about the attitude of denominationalism, the spirit behind denominationalism. And he told me that we're moving from denominationalism to apostleships. And he said, ask me what that means. I said, what does that mean? He said, in denominationalism, people gather when they agree and they divide when they disagree. It's denomination. It's divided nations. We gather when we agree. In other words, we choose our church by what we believe. And he said, in apostleships, people gather because they see their family. There's my father, my mother, my sisters, my brothers. And they gather because of covenant, not because they agree. And he said this, I'm going to pour out new revelation. I'm going to pour out revelation on this generation that's been held in the vaults of heaven for the eons of ages. I'm about to release it on this generation. 
How many know Daniel prophesied this? In the last days, knowledge will increase. He wasn't talking about the internet. He was talking about the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, which will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It'll be deep and it'll be wide. God's going to reveal more about himself to this generation than is known in all of human history. And he said, even the angels long to look into the revelation I'm about to release on this generation. But he said this to me. If I release revelation on this generation, it will rip the wineskin if I release revelation on this wineskin in denominationalism because people gather when they agree and they divide when they disagree and revelation tends to cause people at first to least disagree. So he said, I'm, creating, I'm giving you a new operating system. I'm, I'm creating a new wineskin. And by the way, this isn't a new wineskin. This is a renewal of the wineskin that God poured out originally. And we are the ones who changed the skin. And God began to teach me and talk to me about denominationalism. Now, I'm not Catholic. I very much honor the Catholic Church. I think it's important to honor your mother. We just did a big... Um, thing in France. We had the archbishop of the area come. We had 20 priests. This is just a week ago. And we did a healing mini- meeting, miracle meeting. 1,500 Catholics came from all over the place. The archbishop opened the meeting. He blessed the meeting. There was people all over the floor. They were laughing. They were getting delivered. They were getting saved. It was amazing. And I want to tell you one more thing. The Catholic Church is, we, find, we have found the Catholic Church to be the standard, moral standard in the storm of immorality in our countries, have we not? And so everyone has weaknesses, but you shouldn't talk bad about your mama. And I'm not Catholic, but the Lord just gave me this example. How many times has the Catholic Church split? I said never. But a Catholic historian wrote me about five years ago with this long paper and said three times. The Catholic Church has split three times in history. Great. In 2,000 years, the Catholic Church split three times. How many, how many times has the Protestant Church split in 500 years? Okay, let's make it simple. How about in the last 30 days? What do the Catholics call the leaders of each of their individual churches? Father. <laughs> Okay, I just thought I'd let it settle. Bill does it. Bill, Bill says something and people go, whoa, where'd he get that? He was quoting Jesus Christ word for word, actually. Uh, the Bible. I don't, some of you probably are, no question, there's people in this room that are greater theologians than I by far, and I don't know enough to make strong statements about Martin Luther and about the Reformation and all that. But let me just say this. This is, this is something I do know. And I was stood on the very place where the Reformation began in Germany. And, and I do know that Martin Luther did not leave the Catholic Church because of social issues. He left because of theological issues. I'm not saying he shouldn't le- have left. I'm not saying he should. I'm just, I, I'm just telling you, like, I honestly don't know. Like, I don't have enough understanding of, those, of that era. And I sat with a the, uh, historic theologian. Uh, historian and a theologian about five years ago and he was teaching me all this stuff it was amazing so I'm not qualified to make a decision on whether Martin Luther did the right thing the wrong thing and I understand it's a very complicated issue but my point is this he left because he disagreed and it's funny that we leave when we disagree 
Because we are Protestant. The word first meant pro-testament, but it soon meant protester. And my point is, is that we gather when we agree, and we divide when we disagree. So think about this for a minute. If we gather when we, because we agree, and we divide when we disagree, and we tend to choose our church by the theology they teach, then what does a shepherd of a denominationalism church, did I got it right that time, have to do See, if you're a shepherd of a denominationalism church, you have to make sure people don't disagree. Because when they disagree, they leave. What's it take to have a disagreement? I would say, an opinion. This is not deep. An opinion. What does it take, what does it take to have an opinion? A thought. What do I have to make sure you don't do? If you come to a denominationalism church, I have to make sure you don't think, because if you think, you'll have an opinion. And if you have an opinion, then you can have a different one than me. And if you have a different one than me, you'll split my church. And by the way, it sounds funny, but it's being done every single day. Because I'm not there because you're my dad. I'm there because we agree. And when we disagree, I'm gone. So guess what happens in denominationalism churches? We preach to convince instead of preaching to inspire. And we wonder why there's no revelation in our churches because revelation causes people to think and thinking people split churches. Okay. That was good. <laughs> Let me just ask you a couple of questions. Before you knew Jesus, you did not have Jesus living inside of you. Is this true? Let's get something we can agree on. Would it not have Jesus inside of us? In other words, the God who made all the universe is not inside of me. Before I know Jesus. Do we, can we agree on that? I received Jesus and the God who made everything now lives inside of me. True? Before I met Jesus, I did not have the mind of Christ. True? I meet Jesus and I instantly get the mind of Christ. True? Before I met Jesus, I did not sit in heavenly places. True? But after I met Jesus, I'm seated in heavenly places. It's not a theology or a philosophy. It's a reality. I'm seated in heavenly places. And according to Revelation chapter 4, Jesus said to John the Apostle, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So would we agree that our heavenly seat gives us eternal perspectives, and we see things long before they happen because of our eternal perspective? Is that true? Before we knew Jesus, we did not have Holy Spirit. True? After we met Jesus, we had the Holy Spirit, which gives us the gift of wisdom. True. Before we met Jesus, we were, we were not in the kingdom. True. After we met Jesus, we were in the king's dominion. And Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet of the entire Old Testament. But the very least in the kingdom was greater than John. Have you thought through this? That would mean that John was greater than David. John was greater than Moses. Daniel. John was greater than Daniel or Esther or anybody you admire in the Old Covenant up to John. Jesus is the one who said John is the greatest prophet of the whole Old Testament. That would mean that John was greater than Daniel and Daniel was ten times smarter than all of the counselors of the king. And you, the least in the kingdom, is greater than Daniel who's greater, who, and, and greater... Greater than Daniel, that's a true statement, 
and greater than John. That would make you smarter, potentially, than all of the king's wise men, including Solomon. I can give you a whole bunch more. For instance, how many of you understand Ephesians chapter 3 says that you have the wisdom from another age and you're going to teach principalities and powers the wisdom of God. I'm going on and on. And there's, there is more than a hundred advantages to you being wiser than anyone else when you receive Jesus Christ. Okay, so did you get, you need some more? Okay, so let me ask you a question. When you go to get a job, why isn't the first thing on the application, are you a Christian? Because if you're 10 times wiser than Daniel, and you're 10 times wiser than the whole Old Testament, wiser than Solomon, and you live in heavenly places, and you're seated from heavenly places, you live from heaven towards earth, and you have, because your heavenly place gives you eternal perspectives, you can actually predict the stock market before it happens, and you have the gift of prophecy, you have the gift of word of knowledge, these are all the gifts the Holy Spirit has, then why aren't we head and shoulders above anyone else in the world? Why isn't it the day you get saved, why don't people go, oh, we want to only hire, listen, don't tell anybody because we, we, can't, we can't tell anybody we do this, but we only hire Christians because they're smarter than anybody else. And they're the wisest, most creative people because the creator lives inside of them. I can go on and on. My point is, tell me why we don't seem to have any advantage over people who don't know God in the marketplace. I can tell you why. I can, I can tell you why. Because we've been taught to not think. If you start using your full potential, you will rise to heights you've never thought of before. But as long as we have a denominationalism mindset, thinking is dangerous. But what happens if we come into a new wineskin where we gather not because we agree? But we gather because we're a family. And we go, there's my dad, my mom, my brothers, my sister. And suddenly, and suddenly we're connected through covenant and not connected through agreement. What would happen if you stepped over the Jordan River and you came into this new operating system? And suddenly... Unity was the celebration of diversity instead of conformity. And no longer was the church a crowd or a club. And famous people don't come to church, suddenly they become the church. And the church becomes a place where you go to get fully actualized. Instead of, I have to leave the church to get great. <laughs> because when you can come to the church and be humbled, but you can't be exalted there, you have to go out to be exalted. Because if you get exalted there, you are a threat to the leadership. <laughs> See, <laughs> in denominationalism, I get an education, I get a degree, and therefore I are the leader. I'm the leader because I'm the most qualified. The most gifted person leads. Guess what happens if a more gifted person starts to rise up? 
I have to sabotage anybody who's more qualified because I'm here because I'm the most qualified. But in denominational, but in apostleships, Paul said, the least me, Paul, the least of all the apostles. And he said, I'm an apostle, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. So suddenly, you know, there's a, in order to have a ministry of any kind, you have to, call, have to have a calling, a gifting, and an anointing. Your calling gives you your identity. Your gifting gives you your ability. And your anointing gives you your purpose. If you have gift-based ministry, in other words, I came to this ministry, I got this job, I got authority because I'm the most gifted. Guess what happens when more gifted people come along? I have to defend my place by making sure that I, there's this glass ceiling over you and the glass ceiling is named Chris. You can't get bigger than me because people follow me because I'm the most gifted. But what happens if I have called-based leadership? You can't take me out because you didn't put me here. And now my job is to act... It, my, my job is actually measured... My success of my job is actually measured by how many people outgrow me because I'm a father or I'm a mother and my... my my ministry, I'm sorry, my success is not measured by producing, it's measured by reproducing. And suddenly my success is in the people who have grown me, and I come and say, I'll give you everything I got, and I become the bottom of the pyramid instead of the top. And it's no longer about how, how much I can do. It becomes how much I can empower the people around me to outgrow me, and my destiny is in their destiny. Because I've created an environment where I say, think, be inspired, make mistakes, it's okay, you're in a family, this is a successful place. We don't just have, we don't just have a manufacturing department with zero defects, we have an R&D, we have a research and development. You can come here and learn. And how many of you know it's really difficult to be ready for the jungle when you train in the zoo? We don't have anything go wrong in our church. No, you don't have anything going. You would have to have something going before it can go wrong. And I'm not talking about your church or my church. I'm talking about church. I'm just talking about church in general. It's like, it's like, a, <laughs> it's like a global orphanage. And God wants to us to move back to family, back to covenant. The church wasn't born in a, in a conference. It was born in a covenant. And how many of you understand the nature of God is that He gives you choices? Uh-oh. God planted two trees in the garden. God did. He did. It wasn't like God planted a tree and the devil came in at night and planted another tree. God planted a good tree, the tree of life, and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. God planted both trees. And he told Adam, don't eat the second tree. We come, to, we come in and we cut down the second tree. And we're like, we call it sanctification. We take away people's choices and we think we've done something. But how many of you know the only way to get a reward for doing the right thing is to have the opportunity to do the wrong? Have you ever thought about why you ended up on the same planet with the devil? I mean, have you ever thought of it? Like, there's a lot. Why not put the devil on Pluto? <laughs> have you ever thought through why? I mean, why did God, what a cruel experiment put us on the planet with the devil. I mean, if the devil 
was bad for you, why would he put, why would God, who's only good, put you on a planet with the devil? You're like, well, I, I, don't, I don't get permission to think. <laughs> Give me the answer. Because, yes, yes, so we can stomp him. Love requires you to cho- choose. See, God could have programmed you to serve him. But love requires you to have a choice. If you're going to choose God, there has to be another choice. Can you imagine God being the only God on the planet and saying, okay, choose me or choose me? No, there had to be another God. That's why he's, the devil's called the God of this world. So you can choose the devil or you can choose God. But love requires a choice. When you take away people's choices, that's called religion. And I mean, I'm using the word religion in a negative sense. I understand James talks about good religion, but I'm talking about bad religion where it's form instead of relationship. And I'm saying that God wants people to have choices. In America, this, this example works really good. Jesus went to a wedding. And his mother said, they're out of wine. He said, what's that have to do with me? You know, it's not my time for miracles. You know, metaphorically speaking, I only do what I see my father doing. My father's not making wine. She's like, your mother says make wine. (laughs) I thought that was kind of funny, you know. It's not my time. I said make wine. Okay, tell them to bring the barrels. And Jesus made wine. And when the cupbearer, the waiter, took the wine, you know the story. He said, this is amazing. Most people serve the good wine first. And then when people are drunk, they serve the bad wine. And by the way, Americans hate that. They changed the word in all of our translations to fully drunk. Like you drank a lot. And then we say it's grape juice. <laughs> Jesus turned water into wine and Americans turned into grape juice. And we have these big debates. You probably wouldn't understand this because you're, your, you're in Europe. I don't mean you wouldn't understand because you're not intelligent, but I mean... You're... <laughs> That's all right, Chris. Just insult everybody and see if you get out of here alive. In America, we have big debates whether or not that, that was grape juice or wine. I know this sounds crazy, but it is absolutely true. And grape juice is winning. Yeah, and you know what the thinking is? You probably figured this out. The thinking is this. Jesus would not have made more wine for people who are already drunk. Therefore, it had to be grape juice. Because Jesus doesn't agree with drunkenness, so why would He give people an opportunity to get drunker than they already were? And I'll tell you the reason. Because in order to have, get rewarded for doing the right thing, you have to have the opportunity to do the wrong. I'm saying, we make make it grape juice. No one can get drunk in our services. We don't do enough community. Anyway. It's such a metaphor, at least in the American church, for what we do. We create safe places where people have no choice. And then we wonder why our people can't think. They can't think because we cut the second tree down and we sterilize the garden. 
And we call it sanctification. And we forget, Jesus told the disciples, get swords. You remember this? Sell your coats and get swords. They found two swords. We don't know who got the second sword, but we know who got the first one. Peter. A few hours later, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And Peter takes the sword out. It's the same day Jesus said, get swords. Peter takes the sword out and, you, and, and cuts the guy's ear off. Now, Peter's a fisherman. You know he's not that good. <laughs> Don't tell me that Peter could actually cut an ear off with a sword he's never used before. I'm sure he was aiming for the head. And the guy... And Jesus is like, Peter, what are you doing? Sure, I'm so sorry. Peter! What spirit are you of? Puts the guy's ear... Oh, sir, can you hear how that... Is that okay? I think it would have been so cool if he would have lobbed his head off. <laughs> sir, I'm sorry, you lost your head. <laughs> Peter! Peter, what are you doing? Sir, put, move it around. How's that feel? Everything? Try your tongue. Everything okay? I mean, it never occurs to us that God would actually give us a sword He didn't want us to use. Because that requires thinking. What would happen if you actually started to think? Isaiah prophesied, all of us like sheep have gone astray. You know how sheep go astray? They watch each other's butts. And hope there's a shepherd up front. Well, Mildred, we must be going the right way. 99 butts can't all be wrong. The Bible doesn't say arise and reflect. It says arise and shine. God never intended us to be an echo. He always wanted us to be a voice. He made everybody a priest. He gave everybody an opportunity to hear from the Holy Spirit. And I'd like to propose to you that we're moving out of denominationalism. And we're moving into apostleships. I'd like to propose to you that we're moving out of gathering and we're moving and descending. Some years ago, we were praying before the service like we often do, and we were together in, this, in, this, in the room praying, and, and we, you know, you guys have customs you don't even know you have. Us too. And we were in, the, in this big circle, and we were praying before, for, this, for, this, for the day, for the Sunday morning. And, um, and so everybody was just praying and, you know, and somebody breaks out and starts praying out loud and we all agree with them. And, and the, the, our kind of custom, our like unwritten custom is when you want to pray, when it, you have something to pray, then you kind of shamba louder than everybody else. So somebody's praying, you're like, then when you have something, you're like, that means translated, I'm next.
So we're praying in this big circle, maybe 20, 30 of us. And Teresa's right next to me, Teresa Deadman. She's praying. She said, Lord, we just pray for Jesus to come today, da, da, heal the sick. And I'm, and I'm with her, and, I, and I, I have something to pray, you know? And so I started, Shambha, Shabaya, Dama, Dada, I'm next. And you know how this works. When you pray by yourself, you just pray whatever. Oh, God, let's pray you touch him. When you pray publicly, you have to, like, pray a good prayer. You can't do some stupid prayer. Someone, what the? You have to formulate your prayer like a speech to God. You laugh because you do the same thing. You do not pray in private the way you pray in public. Don't even tell me you do. I've got to use some scriptures to let them know what I'm praying is in the Bible. And so I had been teaching on the Pool of Bethesda how the pool had five porticles. John 5. It had five porticles. And how people would come to the pool when the angel stirred the water. Remember this? And the first one to get in the pool would get healed. And I'd been, I had actually been studying that, those verses and the Lord had given me some insight about six months before this story I'm about to tell you. And I, and I began to see that the that the pool had five porticles, and I did a little study on the porticles, and it just means porches. And, and I began to think, why did, he, why did John even mention that it had five porticles? He didn't mention anything else about the pool, but it has five porticles. And I thought, this must mean something. There must be some meaning to this. You know, it's like if you showed up in, of an, at an accident, you were a witness, and the police officer came over and said, did you see the accident? And you said, yes, both cars had windshield wipers. You would think that must have something to do with the accident because you didn't mention anything else about the cars. So I'm like, this had to mean something because he, John mentions nothing else about the, por- about the pool. It doesn't give you any description except for it had five porticles. So I'm, I'm praying over that, and I, I, I felt like the Holy Spirit said, it's, this is, it actually had five porticles, but it has another meaning, and that is it had five coverings. And I started to realize, like, oh, this is actually a great metaphor for the fivefold ministry. When the fivefold ministry goes from emerging to merging into one pool. From emerging to merging. We're going to, see, we're going to make strategic, strategic alliances with heavenly allies, and the angels are going to help us. And it's, about, it's not just about unity, it's about every fivefold minister actually finding their place and beginning to move together. And I was teaching on that for about six months. So I started, when I was shambhaing, I was going to pray. Here's my prayer. I had it all formulated. Lord, I pray that this morning that Bethel Church would be like the pool of Bethesda. And people would get in the pool and get healed. People would get in the pool and get saved and delivered. You get the idea. So I was shambhaing. So finally, Teresa wound down her prayer. And I started. I said, Lord, I pray this morning that Bethel Church would be like... And when I went to say the pool of Bethesda, instantly the Holy Spirit said, that's an old word. Well, that's an old word. I said, what's the new word? He said, Ezekiel's river. Well, the problem is I hadn't read Ezekiel in 15 years. <laughs> I, I knew there was a river in Ezekiel, and I knew there was something about some trees. So I, so I went just like this. Lord, I pray this morning that Bethel Church would be like Ezekiel's river. And I thought, you know, sometimes when you pray, other things come, but nothing so you just, you say it with a different accent. You just, you just emphasize it a little differently. 
So I pray, Jesus, I pray this morning that Bethel Church would be like Ezekiel's river. There's a river in the book of Ezekiel. I couldn't remember where the trees were. And there's trees. In the book of Ezekiel, there are trees. You know, you don't want to say in the river because you can't remember where the stupid trees were, but there was trees in the river somewhere. So I said, Lord, I pray this morning the Bethel Church would be like, like Ezekiel's river. Everybody's quiet. Like there's a river in Ezekiel. And there's trees. In the book of Ezekiel, there are trees. And there's a river. Amen. I actually had no idea what I was talking about. And actually, I think the Lord thought it was very funny. I went home that day. And I began to talk to the Lord. I'm like, okay, Ezekiel's River. <laughs> the first thing I did was read it. Oh, the trees are along the river. Yes, I knew there were trees. <laughs> and this is what I read. He brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, the water was flowing from down under the threshold of the, the house towards the east. For the house faced the east, and the water was flowing from down under. That's Australia. From the right side of the house, from the south of the altar. And he brought me by the way of the north gate, and he led me around the outside to the outer gate by the way of the gate which faces east. And behold, the water was trickling from the south side. When the man went out towards the east with a line in his hand, and he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again he measured a thousand, and he led me through water, water reaching the knees. And again he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, water reaching the loins. And again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that no one could ford, for the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a water, a river that could not be forded. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And he brought me back to the bank of the river. And now when I returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were many trees. There it was, right there, on one side and on the other. Then he said to me, These waters, they go forth from the eastern region. They go down to Abarth, and they go towards the sea, being made to flow into the sea. And the waters of the sea become fresh, which is the exact identical Hebrew word, healed. And it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be many fish. For these rivers go there and the waters become healed. So everything, so everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that the fishermen will stand beside it. And there will be many places for the spreading of net. And their fish will be according to their kinds, the fish of the great sea. And, many, and there will be very many. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. By the river on one, on one, on its, I'm sorry, by the river on its banks, on one side and the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and the fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Later on, the book of Revelation chapter 22 says the leaves were healing of nations. I'm reading that and I want to just finish and if you can just kind of stay close to me, this might sound a little complicated. In this time, where I go back after that prayer, and I go home, and I start reading Ezekiel's river. The Lord said to me, you have misunderstood and called the fivefold ministry, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, the government of God. I'm going to make this connect. So right now, you're lost in space. 
but I'll bring you back and I'll make it all connect in a minute. So don't try to figure it out. Don't think. <laughs> Be denominationalism right now. <clears throat> the Lord said to me, you've called the fivefold ministry the government of God, but they are not the government of God. They are the governors of God. And he said, government is the structure that governors govern in and leadership is the art of governing. I'll say it one more time. Government is the structure that governors govern in, and leadership is the art of governing. And let me give you an example. In our town, there's a college called Shasta College. When the contractor built the college, he didn't put any sidewalks in. He planted lawn all the way around the college. Then he waited for a year, and where the staff and the students wore out the lawn, the next year he poured sidewalks where they wore out the lawn so that the sidewalks would facilitate the destiny of the faculty and the students. Are you with me? It's a beautiful metaphor of government. Government is the sidewalks that governors govern on. Are you with me? And he showed me, in our country, when we left you all, 4th of July, celebrated in England. That was kind of interesting. Nobody wanted to celebrate with me. I just don't get it at all. When we left England, we didn't want a monarchy. We, we developed, as you know, a, a democracy. It's a democratic republic, but if you could just give me a little leadway. We said, we don't want a king. We want the people to have power. We want there to be a balance of power, and so on and so forth. And so we developed a democracy. And so our president was also commander-in-chief of our military, probably because our first president was George Washington, who was our, at the time, greatest general. And our government, our forefathers, thought through this really well. And they said, listen, democracy is a great form of government in a time of peace. But if we were ever attacked on our own shores, the problem with democracy, as you know, it moves too slow to make a decision to actually win a war. In other words, if people are dropping bombs on you, you can't actually pass through Congress what you should do next. So they gave the right of power to the commander-in-chief, and during times of war, our governmental structure changes from a democracy to a mil militaristic government. And the Lord showed me that you could, uh, we could have the greatest general in human history as president and commander-in-chief of our country. But in a time of war, if the structure, watch, follow me, if the governmental system did not shift, it wouldn't matter who our commander-in-chief was because democracy, the governmental style of democracy, would, it, would, it would cover our strength and empower our weakness. Are you with me? So what happens in a time of war is the governor, I'm using the word president, governor, uh, simultaneously, the, the governor remains the same person. Our president still is president. What shifts? The government. The structure shifts. Are you with me? And the Lord said to me, the modern world has never seen the true power of an apostle because apostles have emerged in a pastorate. I'm going to put it all together for you now. What do pastors do? I'm talking about a real five-fold pastor. Not, we call everyone pastor in our country. I don't know what you guys call you guys. We call everybody pastor. But I mean, a real five-fold pastor, what do they do? They gather. What do apostles do? Well, let me tell you what apostles do. The word apostle actually was developed by the Greeks. Of course, you know what it means to be sent. It actually means 
just the word. It means sent one. But it actually means to be sent from a place to reproduce in another place what you were sent from till the place you're sent to looks like the place you're sent from. So the Romans, when the Romans were conquering the world, they were sending out these envoys and they were conquering cities. And the problem was, is that when you're in Rome, you do as the Romans do. And the Romans found out that they were conquering cities, but they weren't culturizing. And they said, why are we conquering cities? But these people are not, they're not learning the Roman ways. What's the purpose of conquering cities that aren't really Romans? So they took some of their Roman um, generals and they renamed them apostles after the Greek concept. And they said, you're our apostles. And they sent with the, with the Roman generals, these apostle generals, they sent out, obviously the military first, but then they sent artists and philosophers and governmental people and politicians and musicians. And basically, the point is, they conquered and culturized. They conquered and culturized because the word apostle means to culturize. You can plant 500 churches, and if you don't change the culture, you're not apostolic. Because apostles don't plant churches, they transform culture. Are you with me? Then Jesus turned to his disciples, and he gave them, when he moved them from disciples to leaders, it's interesting that he chose the secular word. He said, you're my apostles. Instead of calling them prophets or patriarchs or priests, he said, you're my apostles. It would be like equal to, in America at least, saying, you're my CEOs. And then he gave them the apostolic prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever noticed that our whole emphasis is getting people to heaven, but his emphasis was getting heaven to people? That's because we shifted, we shifted from this gospel of self. I'm saying we preach the gospel of salvation, but Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, here we go. Anyway, my point is this, is that Jesus, uh, he commissioned his disciples to be apostles, and he said to them, here, you live in heavenly places. Your job is to look around heaven and reproduce it in earth until heaven until earth looks like heaven, until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. That's our job. Okay, follow me. I'm almost done. The pool of Bethesda is a great, it's a great metaphor, if you will, of a pastorate. What's a pastorate? It's a form of government that pastors pastor in. What's the point? You want to get healed, you come to the pool. You want to get delivered, you come to the pool. You want to get saved? You come to the pool. Oh, my, my fam, my, I have a friend who has a bad marriage. Let's bring him to church. I have a, a friend who's sick. Oh, bring him to church. I have a friend who needs to be saved. Well, bring him to church. And the goal is to bring to church. But how many understand that apostles, they train and equip and deploy? And get this, Ezekiel's River. Where is the river coming from? Underneath where? The sanctuary door. Where's the water coming from? Underneath the sanctuary door. And guess what happens? A thousand, let's just say feet. A thousand feet from the sanctuary door, it's up to his ankles. Two thousand feet to his knees. Three thousand feet to his loins. Four thousand feet from the, from the sanctuary, it's a river so deep you can't swim in it. What's the point? The further you get from the sanctuary, the deeper the river. What's the point? The greatest miracles don't happen in church. 
They happen the furthest you get from the church. Why? Because the goal of the church is to train and equip the saints. It's no longer the ministry to the saints. It's the ministry of the saints. And no longer do we come to church. We become the church. And Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights or whatever you gather, they become Holy Spirit terrorist training centers where we're training the saints to do the work of service. And no longer do I say, come to the church. I say, I'm in the kingdom and the kingdom just came near you. And the emphasis is not gathering anymore. It's training, equipping, and sending. Do we have pastors? Of course. But pastors are under, under apostleship. So they gather so they can get them healthy. And then the apostles train, equip, and deploy them. And what happens when we change into the model that Jesus intended in the very beginning? All of a sudden, the river is going everywhere. And guess what? Even trees that don't get in the river are being influenced by the culture. And they're bearing fruit 12 times a year. Even the trees that aren't in the river, along the river. Why? Because the river is seeping into the root system of society and nations are getting healed. Why? Because Jesus ever, Jesus didn't just commission us to make disciples. He commissioned us to make disciples of nations. It was the promise to Abraham. Your Abraham, it's, it's Romans chapter 4. In, in hope and against hope, Abraham believed. And so he became the father of many nations. Not the father of Israel, the father of many nations. Jacob was the father of Israel. Abraham was the father of many nations. And he finishes in Romans 4 by saying, And so shall your descendants be. What? Father of many nations. It's the echo of Jesus saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. You make disciples of nations. How many know we're making disciples in nations? But Jesus said, Make disciples of nations. Listen, we're reading the scriptures through a, a pastoral mindset. And I'm saying, it's good, but it's not the season for that. It's the season to transition into apostolic ministry so that people are getting trained and equipped and the saints are doing the work of the ministry. And no longer do we come to church and pay one person to do ministry. And no longer do we say, well, you're the layman and we're the professionals. No, there's no such thing as layman in the Bible. Jesus said, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans means conquer of the lay people. They were the people who divided the church into two separate categories. We have the professionals and we have the people who watch the professional do what they do. And Jesus said, I hate that. I'd like to suggest that the harvest is plentiful and so are the laborers. Because Jesus told the disciples to pray for harvesters and I'd like to say that you're his answer to their prayers. That no longer is the labor, the harvest plentiful and the labors are few. Now the harvesters, as soon as the harvest gets saved, it becomes a laborer. And I'd like to suggest that the goal is not to fill our churches with Christians. The goal is to make disciples who leave. If we judge the success of our ministry by how many people come to church in two hours, we've missed this apostolic age. And I'll finish with this. I wrote a book called How Heaven Invades Earth. And we studied American cities when we did the book. Only American cities. And this is what we found. The cities that had the greatest Christian church-blowing population had the worst social statistics in our nation. Uh, let me translate that so you don't have to think. 
the more people that went to a Christian church, that went to Christian churches, the greater the percentage of population that went to Christian churches in any American city, with the city, with the exception of five cities in our nation, the worse off the social statistics were. What's the point? The, see, when people get saved in in America, they huddle. It's light under a basket. The goal isn't to be... Jesus didn't say, I'm the light of the church. He said, I'm the light of the world. I'd like to tell you that Jesus wants you out of church. You're like, you're going to shrink our churches. Honey, I shrunk the church. What'd you do this week? I shrunk the church. No, I'm repurposing the church. This was God's plan all along. And guess what? When people can come to church and be empowered... You'll, be, you'll see, they will come by the tens of millions. You know why? Because people are starving for the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. And in the gospel of kingdom, everybody gets to do this stuff. Everybody gets to do this stuff. And guess what? There isn't a place in the world where the devil is safe. Because God has his people like leaven kneaded into the dough of society and because people suddenly have the mind of Christ and they begin to think suddenly there's no place safe would you stand I want to pray for you all okay I want you to do this right here put your hand right here Okay, this is the master switch, and you're going to switch it on so you can think again. It'll probably, like, smell for a little while. But permission granted, let's click it on, to think. Arise and shine. Arise and shine. Arise and shine. If you're watching Sheep Butts, you got you won the wrong you won the wrong paradigm. <laughs> so Lord, I just pray. God, I thank you that you said I'll build the church. You said extend the kingdom. When we build the church and wonder who's extending the kingdom. And Lord, we just give you your church back. You can have it back. She's not in too good a shape, but you can have her back. <laughs> and Lord, we say you build the church. And God, we want to be kingdom people who extend the kingdom, who walk in wonders and signs and miracles everywhere we go. And we pray that the trees along the river would begin to bear fruit every season and the leaves would be for the healing of nations. And Lord, we pray for Scotland and America and all of UK. And Lord, we just pray that there would be a massive, not just revival, we pray for a massive reformation that would cause a transformation. That literally, that the nations, from the root system, from the water that's seeping out of the sanctuary door, it's getting into the root systems of nations, and it's changing their mindset. And suddenly, Daniels and Esthers are rising up and directing nations. Josephs and, 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 and Deborahs, and, and just these people are just being seated into nations. And, it, and, and God, we pray that we would make disciples of nations. And that we would teach people the ways of the kingdom. And they would say, hey, let's go to that place. Kings would come in procession. And they would say, let's go to the house of God. 
He'll teach us His ways. We'll walk in His paths. Then it says, and they will beat their spears into pruning hooks and their swords into, into plowshares and never again will they train for war. Lord, we just release this good news that we would be bearers of good news. And we pray, God, I pray for the mind of Christ to spread over every single person and that people would have dreams and, and even old men would begin to dream again. Let old people dream again. Let them stop being cynical. Well, that's never going to work. Let me tell you 14 reasons why that can't happen. Lord, let old people dream again. Let us be like Caleb's. He said, when I was in Kanish Barnea, Moses promised me any land I wanted. Lord, let us be like people who dream again. Let's let go of the funeral song and sing the wedding song. I bless every single person in here. In Jesus' name, amen.